Good morning. I'm Sana, and I'm so excited to spend another Monday morning together. And happy Labor Day! So glad that you are here and have decided to tune in to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. Throughout US history, the government has regulated and at times prohibited various drugs and other intoxicating substances. In the 1970s, President Richard Nixon signed into law the Controlled Substance Act and then declared a war on drugs, citing drug abuse as public enemy number one. This war on drugs had many intended and perhaps unintended consequences that continue today. To talk more about the war on drugs and what it tells us about politics, crime, media, and even how we think about ourselves and others, this morning we are joined by Dr. Michael Rosino. Michael is an assistant professor of sociology at Malloy College in Long Island, New York. His teaching and research interests include race and ethnicity, political sociology, social movements, media, and human rights. His first book, Debating the Drug War, Race, Politics, and the Media, was published this spring with Routledge Press. Good morning, Dr. Michael Rosino, and welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, it's Dr. Uh, Laburn. I'm excited <laughs> to be here. I'm still, I, you know, because of, because of the pandemic, I'm actually still getting used to, I finished my, my dissertation and defended during COVID. So, you know, people calling me doctor is still a little weird for me just because, you know, I didn't get to celebrate in the real way. So I'm soaking it in. I, I appreciate that. Yes, yes. Continue Thank to you. soak it in. I did not even think about the fact that you became a doctor in an entire pandemic. And <laughs> Exactly like what you were mentioning, how that kind of feels like you didn't really get to do all of the kind of ceremony and mm -hmm. ritual that kind of mark you as coming into the title of doctor. Yeah. Yeah, it's been surreal. I mean, the upside was when I defended, I was on Zoom. So I was wearing like a really nice shirt and then like basketball shorts. <laughs> And I could immediately like walk into my living room and like drink a really nice scotch when it was done. So you know, I got to celebrate in my own way, but yeah, it's been, it's been, I'm sure as everyone listening knows, like this, we live in, in kind of strange times right now. So I'm yeah. sure a lot of people can relate to this. Absolutely. Absolutely. But you're right. There are kind of these kind of pros and cons. So at least you got to be really comfortable <laughs> in your own home, in the basketball shorts. Exactly. <laughs> Versus like, oh, that experience of being super kind of formal in your attire and then defending a dissertation and all of that extra anxiety, at least you're in the comfort or relative comfort of your own home and exactly. definitely having, you know, a nice beverage on hand. It's <laughs> key. So you also had not only defending the dissertation and becoming an entire doctor, but also having a book come out this spring, of course, during the pandemic as well. Um, so first, congratulations on the book. Thank you. 
Yes. So what was that experience like since we're talking about, you know, these different experiences sure. and monumental occasions happening <laughs> in a pandemic? How was that having this first book come out this spring? Um, I mean, it was really exciting. I mean, I don't think that, that even the pandemic could like totally overshadow kind of just how exciting and surreal it is. Um, you know, I have such a profound respect for um, book authors, like of any genre, because this book probably took me like five or six years to write in total. I was looking back at my the original proposal that I wrote like recently, because I'm working on the next one. And, and I was like, I think it said something like this book will be finished by like 2015 or something like that. And I was like, wow, that's hilarious. Like, that definitely didn't happen. But it was nice because I could keep it kind of up to date. I could go back. I had really good feedback, especially for my first book of just like um, the editors that I worked with, the people that I worked with on it. Uh, my partner was probably really tired of reading these at, at a certain point, reading <laughs> these chapters, but like I got so much helpful feedback. I learned so much about how to communicate um, sociological ideas to like a broad audience, how to break things down and explain them. So it was a really great experience. I think that the downside is, you know, once again, I didn't get to have the book release party uh, I even like still have, um, you know, a bunch of copies because like, I haven't really been seeing people in person as much. Yeah. Um, so that's been kind of, that's been kind of like not as much fun, but I did have a really, you know, I, I did have two kind of really fun experiences with the book coming out. The first one is that when I got my book, when I got my copies, which is kind of when it's really real right. and not just like a PDF was the same day that, um, New York, uh, state had legalized cannabis so wow. writing a book on this topic and having drug policy reform taking place and and a lot of the things that i'm talking about in the book kind of coming to fruition mm -hmm. um with new york having a pretty progressive uh drug policy reforms was really kind of surreal and, and interesting yeah um and then also you know I, I like a lot of people i moved during the pandemic and um really haven't had that much of a chance to get to know my neighbors but I did happen to run into my neighbor on the day that uh, the book came out because I was coming down um, to pick up like a cake that my partner had ordered for me. And I told him like, oh, this is why I, uh, you know, we're celebrating because my book just came out. And then I ran into him like getting the mail like another time. It was maybe like a month later. And he was like, hey, I, I ordered your book. Like, um, I just got it. And I was like, wow, this is it's you know, you have these little moments where it's kind of like, OK, this is real. This is a real thing in the world. Mm -hmm. um yeah so so yeah it's been mixed but um you know I just love that um that experience of kind of like you know uh taking all of these ideas taking all this research and like figuring out how I can make it so that um you know everyday people who maybe don't have the same background and maybe don't have that same kind of uh you know, don't either don't have the opportunity or, you know, I really can't blame anyone for not wanting to get a doctorate. Also, uh, <laughs> I would totally understand that, um, you know, that, that they can tap into this stuff because so much of the work that we do um, as social scientists, as scholars is, is really speaking to like important things. And, and like, we really need to be, um, you know, in on those conversations. So, yeah, I mean, it's been a great experience despite the, you know, not being able to have the book release party and all that. 
Yeah. But what a great way to mark, like you said, when you got the book, the in the handbook, which yes, that is definitely when it's real because so much is, of course, now it's just all online emailing, you know, looking at PDF proofs. But when you get that physical copy, you're like, wow, I really did this. I really Mm. wrote a book and then having it on that same day where, I mean, there's a lot of different types of drug policy (laughs) that could have been happening on that day. So for that, I think is just really fun way to remember you know when you got the book the fact that it's out and like you said those connections for some of the things that you talk about in the book and actually seeing those materialize um, in real life and also I mean shout out to your partner for getting a cake I think you know everything deserves cake so absolutely Absolutely. (laughs) so that is so awesome we definitely have to celebrate however we can Um, But I want to get into the book, exactly what you did and the argument that you lay forth, because I think it's so important. It's so relevant to all of our lives, whether or not we're kind of consciously aware of it or not. Um, I was just thinking about, you know, of course, the war on drugs, because that's what your book is about. But another piece of that, which is something that was very, I guess, a big part of my childhood, and I guess a lot of people's childhood was kind of like campaigns to just say no, and like dare, and all of that. And so how deeply this idea of the war on drugs is embedded in our culture. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that really came through as I started to do this work. I mean, um, so basically what the, the book deals with is looking at the debate that's been taking place over like the past 30 years, you know, we kind of have a formal war on drugs starting like in the early eighties with the Reagan administration, where he's really, um, changing pretty radically, like how the United States approaches drug law enforcement. And obviously, you know, there's, there's a centuries long history of, of, drug policies and moral panics and racism. And, you know, if we have time, we can get into all that. But in terms of like the contemporary approach that we have, which is um, extremely militarized, extremely um, stigmatizing of anyone who is caught up in the legal system in some type of drug related way. And, you know, the enforcement of these of these laws and policies are uneven and tend to be targeted towards marginalized communities. Um, I wanted to understand, you know, given all of that, that history, the, the current sort of empirical evidence, how is it that everyday people talk about drug policy? Because mm-hmm. one of the things that I've noticed is like, if I talk to people about my work, like everyone has a really strong opinion. Everyone has, um, you know, a specific concern or a specific take on it. I mean, and this is even before Twitter and like the world of hot takes that we live in now. But even like you think about like like letters to the editor, op-ed, like so many of them have been written about drug policy and specifically the question of like, what should we do? Mm-hmm. Is the war on drugs a failure? Is it a success? Um, yeah, and so what I did was look at um, like about, like I said, about like 30 years worth of newspaper data, um, you know, pretty much anything that's come out that's mentioned the war on drugs. Um, so that was around like 400 newspaper articles altogether. And then I also, um, looked at internet comments. So I looked at about 3000 internet comments, which I would not recommend anyone ever do. (laughs) It's a bad idea, but I was able to get a book out of it. So it was worth it. Um, 
But I also wanted to know, like, you know, through these internet comments, like how are different audiences responding? It's not like I can build a time machine and like go interview people who were like reading the newspaper like back in the day. So this is probably like the best facsimile I can get to, you know, when certain arguments are presented, how do audiences respond? And then putting all that in the context of like, you know, what does the actual evidence say about what's true? So I was able to identify um, a lot of myths that are taken for granted, even among drug policy reformers, even people who mm-hmm. want to change drug policy or end the war on drugs. There's still a lot of myths that I, uh, were really common. And then, um, yeah, as you mentioned, kind of in my introduction, like, how do people form identities in these conversations? So, you know, how are people, you know, ostensibly talking about drugs or drug use or policy, but ultimately what they're also doing is making claims about what it means to belong to a certain group or making certain claims about, you know, um, what people's social position should be, or, you know, whether or not a certain uh, system is justified. Um, so I began to really see that as well, like so much of the conversation, particularly around the um, racial inequities that I think a lot of people are aware of. They may not know all the like specific mechanisms, but thanks to some really brilliant people like Michelle Alexander, I think more people are aware of, of that there is racial inequities in, in uh, drug policy enforcement. Um, a lot of these conversations really came down to questions of like, what does it mean to be white? What does it mean to be black or Latinx? What does it mean to belong to these different groups? Um, you know, and, and how are different ideas being used to rationalize these different outcomes? Um, Cause basically like if you, if you told someone, Hey, that, like, um, you know, there are race and class inequities in terms of who's uh, being incarcerated for drug crimes, I don't think people would find that like controversial. But if you tried to talk about why that's happening and what the causes are, I think that's where a lot of these ideas about groups get deployed to try to um, defend certain systems. Mm -hmm. So for instance, there's a huge misconception that the reason that uh, Black and Latinx people are misrepresented among the incarcerated population for drug crimes is because they're committing the majority of drug crimes. And throughout American history, that has never been the case. Um, you know, re- the, the best available research, obviously it's hard to say like, hey, do you sell drugs and like have people be honest about it? But the best uh, evidence we have suggests that the majority of drug trafficking, the majority of drug selling the majority of drug use, the majority of drug crimes have been committed by white people, mostly um, middle-class white people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even just that misconception, I think, can, you know, is really, really powerful in terms of people might see these disparate outcomes, but not know um, that they're a product of oppression and discrimination and not a product of like people's cultural traits or a product of sort of like you know, their level of criminality, quote unquote. Um, so those were just some of the things that I kind of um, really started to to find as I was looking through all this. And um, yeah, I mean, I think it, given that this topic is, is, is important and, and there is so much effort going on to 
reform drug laws and, and conversations and places are legalizing cannabis. I mean, I feel fortunate to be doing this kind of work at this time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think what's really unique about your study is, as you mentioned, you are able to look at kind of these changing narratives over time and across a variety of different um, newspaper sources, not to mention the online comments, which I mean, I think you deserve another cake for that. Like you mentioned, <laughs> probably wouldn't suggest, you know, just diving into <laughs> comment sections of uh, op-eds or newspaper articles, but but so glad you did because now we're able to talk about exactly what you found. And so just to kind of get us started, one question I had was, you know, I know you looked at these different newspaper framings and commentary over time. So did you see any changes in how that discourse around the war on drugs was happening or evolving over time? I think maybe this was maybe one of my most um, surprising findings for myself. Um, there really wasn't a lot of change. So one of the one of the patterns that I, I identified was what I call racial silence, which I think is kind of an intuitive term that um, even though we know that um, drug policies and their enforcement are deeply connected to race and racism, um, you know, even going back historically, and, you know, this continues today pretty, you know, obviously, I think, um, a lot of people are very reticent, even on, on the drug policy reform side to overtly talk about racial injustice, or to frame the war on drugs as a matter of racial injustice. And that was consistent, it was consistent across the data set that um, that was the least commonly used argument um, for drug reform. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, you know, there's some really interesting ways we can think about like why that is. I think another one that was really consistent that was surprising was a lot of the argument that was most common was what I call like the functionalist frame, which is basically just arguments that we hear all the time. Like the war on drugs has failed. It's a dysfunctional policy. Mm -hmm. It's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. And even like, I remember the, the onion, published this headline at one point that was like drugs have won the war on drugs. So like we have this pretty clear sense of like, okay, the dominant way that people argue about this, you know, surprisingly consistent is that it's just not doing enough to control crime and drug use. Um, the least common is that it is a, you know, a mechanism where it, where it reproduces or maintains racial injustices. I would be really curious, like, to see if that has changed at all. You know, I, I don't want to be super cynical about it. Like, I know that the average American is it has become more aware of of uh, issues of racial justice. At the same time, there's also been sort of like a backlash against that, as as you know, we see over and over again. Um, mm. So, you know, I don't know what it would look like specifically now. Um, I think my I stopped, the data I had was maybe like 2013 when it stopped, but I was kind of surprised just at how consistent that framing was. I think it says a lot about sort of the, the gaps that have, have existed, even like when people have pushed and, and been successful in drug policy reform, that it hasn't really done a lot to address that legacy of injustice. Mm -hmm. And that there's still a pretty profound uh, sort of common sense 
that uh, drug policy enforcement is still a matter of like making sure we round up all the bad guys. And like, maybe the issue is just that we're not getting the right bad guys or we're not criminalizing the right people or like, you know, whatever, like those arguments are still really, really dominant. Um, so I was surprised by that. I think maybe, you know, I was biased coming into it just because I engaged with so much of the um, sociology side of things of like thinking about, okay, well, I'm really aware that, that these racial injustices exist. They're really well documented. So, you know, at least this should be more prominent. But um, yeah, I mean, that was really fascinating to me. Um, and then I think in terms of that racial silence piece, I think part of it is because a lot of people want to avoid uh, talking about racial inequality and racial injustice. I mean, we have some really amazing studies on that. Um, everything from um, Eduardo Benia Silva's work on colorblind racism, where he talks about how, you know, we have this sort of stigma around talking about racism and talking about racial inequality, but people still find ways to talk about it mm -hmm. that don't explicitly evoke those things. So I think that that's probably part of it. I also think part of it is that people, there's just a lack of consciousness. There's a lack of awareness around the causes and consequences that um, really feed into these racial inequities. So people don't feel versed enough to really talk about them or, or feel comfortable enough making those points. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and then if we combine that also with maybe some of the racial segregation that takes place in the media, and some gatekeeping that takes place is probably also locking out voices of, of people who maybe would be critical or would bring those into the fold. So yeah, that, that, that why question really stuck with me um, mm -hmm. because, you know, I was kind of surprised by that. Yeah, it is surprising. On one hand, it is very surprising, but then on the other hand, for the reasons that you mentioned, it's also, you know, not surprising in that some of these very kind of salient ways or very sticky ideas of the war on drugs and what it means um, to, you know, who is using drugs or selling drugs or, and, and ideas of criminality are also um, very much entrenched throughout society. So in that way, um, we can see how difficult it is to kind of overcome some of these very long-standing beliefs. Uh, but I want to get more into some of your other findings about how people were talking about drug policy and even some of those popular myths that you mentioned mm -hmm. uh, that you saw coming up. But let's take a quick break and then we will get into more of your book, Debating the Drug War, Race, Politics, and the Media. And we are here on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm here with Dr. Michael Rosino. And we're talking about his book, Debating the Drug War, Race, Politics, and the Media. And so before the break, I know one thing that you mentioned, of course, was you were able to really dive into how everyday folks talk about drug policy. And I'm sure that even when you mention to people, you know, what your book is about, you hear even more <laughs> about how everyday folks think about or talk about drug policy. Um, but what are some of the popular myths that you see people reproducing as they talk about their own views on drug policies? I, I think, you know, there, there's some that I really hone in on in the book, which are more sort of these issues around um, misidentifying like who's using drugs, misidentifying who is selling and trafficking drugs, 
Um, I think that is a major one, you know, and I think, you know, that corresponds with other research that demonstrates that um, people in predominantly white communities are much they overestimate um, the amount of crime and violence that takes place in communities of color. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, that, that corresponds with that, some of that other work. But it also was surprising to me that these myths are prevalent, even for people who are like defending the status quo, and even for people who are drug policy reformers. So one of the major talking points that drug policy reformers have made that I think has been, you know, had an unfortunate effect on the debate overall is the assumption that, you know, ultimately the war on drugs has failed because it has produced like this black market. So mm -hmm. therefore, you know, um, these kind of code words get thrown around like urban gangs or foreign drug smugglers um, that tend to um, present the predominant uh, groups involved in these issues as being, um, you know, racialized as being people of color, even though that's not true. Mm -hmm. um, I think that myth really plays a big role. And then I think there were other myths that were a little bit more subtle that have to do with how we talk about drug policy reform. Um, one, I think that's really important is recognizing that people who use drugs are not uh, less necessarily, you know, misusing drugs. So the majority of people who use even hard drugs like uh, cocaine and heroin um, aren't necessarily misusing them. The majority of, of drug use is pretty sporadic. It's pretty non-problematic. It might be a phase that someone's going through. There's obviously the, the complex sort of like psychology of addiction. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people use substances for all kinds of purposes. Um, but I think that's another thing that feeds into it because a lot of people see the drug reform as being about, okay, well, like instead of incarcerating people, we need to um, force them into treatment programs, mm -hmm. which I think is also pretty, um, you know, problematic. You're still kind of it's still almost a form of incarceration and surveillance right. for someone who may or may not be doing something that's actually harmful or dysfunctional. Um, I think that was another one that really came through. And then I think another part of this is basically like the entire framing of it is, is so moralistic. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I really talk about towards the end of the book is that we need to really, I think, rethink how we think about morality in these conversations. Um, I think too often when we think about social problems like um, drug use or, you know, not even that drug use is a social problem, but let's say, you know, um, drug addiction or something like that. Um, it becomes very easy to try to identify good guys and bad guys that, you know, people who are enforcing drug laws are these like warriors who are benevolent and good. And, you know, the um, people who are um, targeted by drug uh, law enforcement are, are, you know, bad guys. They're like the enemy combatants. There's always sort of this language of morality that gets trotted out um, when, uh, you know, an institution or a government is trying to sort of justify having a war. And I think this one is really, no different. So I think the amount of, of times that there is sort of this huge uh, empathy gap, that's like sort of a racial empathy gap where people are being dehumanized. 
and the victims of the war on drugs themselves, the communities, the families, the people who are um, having their lives uprooted and, um, you know, are being harmed by these policies because of, of the way that they're targeted, because of the communities that they live in, um, and because of the harshness of the treatment that they receive, um, are deeply deserving of empathy. And yet, um, there is, like I said, there's a racial empathy gap where if people are associated with, with crime, if people are associated with marginalized groups um, in the public sphere, um, the overall general ability of the public to empathize and humanize those folks is greatly diminished. Mm -hmm. And so I would almost say that, that this kind of dehumanization and stigma basically operates as a myth because it allows us to kind of forget as we're talking about these things that we're talking about human beings that are struggling. Um, and so I, I think those were probably some of the biggest ones. Um, and you can kind of see how they all sort of tie into one another as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that last piece that you were mentioning about the dehumanization and really, you know, creating or looking at um, folks who are, you know, using drugs or maybe even have drug addictions uh, in this very othering type of stance, how that adds, you know, to this whole conversation, but also this inability to think about other types of possible solutions mm -hmm. other than this very militaristic framing, as you mentioned, of, you know, this war on drugs. If there's a war, that means there is, as you mentioned, inherently someone who is the bad guy that must be eliminated. Um, and then what does that mean for, you know, folks who are framed in that way, folks who are our family, our community members, our friends. Um, but what happens when this framing is used and repeated for decades? Absolutely. Yes. So I know one big piece of the book is thinking about how these different framings and these different approaches or the way we're talking about the war on drugs actually supports folks identities or how they mm -hmm. think about themselves, how they think about other folks. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how um, the war on drugs is being used um, to create identity, both for folks who are maybe using or deploying these myths, but also through, um, in the broader sense, through the creation of these policies as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that was one of the things that I think well, I think a lot of us might have a sense of this already, like just in sort of the social media uh, ecosystem that we live in. I mean, so many conversations that we have online, particularly, or that we have that are ostensibly like supposed to be about a specific policy. They're supposed to be about sort of what should we do to solve a problem end up being about um you know, which side is moral and superior, or what does it mean to belong to a specific type of group, whether that's a racial group or, or a political group or political identity, um, parceling out sort of these moral categories, for instance. Mm -hmm. So there were quite a few times when claims about um, the, the racial injustice of the war on drugs were um, 
you know, pushed back by predominantly white audiences that I saw merely because it was important for members of these audiences to assert that the outcomes in the war on drugs were evidence of the moral superiority of white people and the Mm -hmm. cultural superiority of white people. Um, And that sort of idea, that, that idea that racial inequality is a, it represents, you know, uh, moral and cultural differences between groups is very strong. It's very intoxicating. And a lot of, uh, particularly dominant group members, I think have a really strong investment in that. I think that's why a lot of times these conversations for certain people can make them feel really uncomfortable because it feels like it's, it's attacking their identity about what it means to be, to belong to a certain group. And, so one of the things that I really tried to, to break down is, you know, when I'm looking at these different conversations, you know, obviously people aren't always engaging with the evidence. They're not always engaging with, you know, what's actually uh, empirically true. I mean, not everyone has access to that information. There's a huge information flow problem, but also part of it is that people are using these conversations to identify themselves, to figure out who they are and what their place in the world is and why they have that place in the world. Like another sort of related one that I notice is, is what um, philosophers and social scientists called the just world fallacy, which I think kind of ties into this, which is this idea that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. Mm-hmm. That really allows us to like feel okay about things. I mean, in some sense, we can think of these as being like really, really comforting myths, really Mm -hmm. allowing us to feel like, okay, no, this is a very simple issue. And to not um, really identify with or empathize with people who are suffering in specific ways, I think it it really cuts off certain types of empathy from taking place. Mm -hmm. Um, And it also becomes part of people's identities, because, you know, if they're so stuck on if someone is very stuck on like being a good person and that everything that they do is about that more so than figuring out, okay, like what is, what does it mean to be a good person? And like, how do I try to figure that out for myself? But rather, no, it's very important for me to define myself as a good person. Mm -hmm. Um, That really is a huge impediment to having like the actual productive policy conversations that we need to have as a society so that we can actually come up with real solutions that actually work. And um, that was something I definitely noticed in terms of like power and inequality. There was definitely um, a good percentage of uh, what scholars would call counter narratives. So people pushing back against that, people either asserting some of these sort of historical and, and um, you know, sociological evidence that I've been alluding to, or people pushing back by pointing to their own lived experience, perhaps as a person of color who experiences, um, you know, discrimination or has, has experienced unfair treatment um, personally. Um, but ultimately, I think one of the things that happens is these perspectives that are assuming a sort of common sense around this, these myths that, uh, that I've mentioned assume sort of that there's a common consensus around uh, what it means to be uh, white in America, certain con- common sense assumptions about um, the causes of inequality. Um, 
it's never really fully challenged. And sort of even like these places where we could be having these really fruitful uh, discussions, we could be coming up with solutions, we could be addressing issues, that really becomes a major um, impediment to actually solving an issue, or, or even, you know, thinking about what, what would be the policy solutions that would help people? Um, or what would be the ways that we could make sure people kind of thrive and flourish, regardless of who they are? Um, yeah, and I, I think that like that really does tie back to the racial identities that people grow up with, the, the things that they internalize about who they are and what it means to belong to the group that they belong to. I think particularly for uh, dominant group members, I think there's like a really strong investment that they get attached to in um, the idea that, you know, they deserve to be in the status that they have, that, that you know, it's a, it's a representation of moral, cultural superiority. Um, and I found that so fascinating. I mean, I think that's, that's a dynamic that I'm, I'm hoping that readers can kind of like notice and, and try mm -hmm. to identify in the world around them, because I think some of these things obviously extend beyond drug policy. I think you can yeah. see this in so many different public uh, conversations that we have. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's so powerful that connection, as you're talking about, when we're creating identities, you know, thinking about who we are, people who are like us, but then also who we are and people who are not like us. And, you know, that can be very hard to detach from, especially when there are so many messages around us that are kind of bolstering our ideas of our own, in this case, thinking about racial group identities. I think the war on drugs piece is so important because as you mentioned, with the war on drugs inherently or implicitly, there is this creation of, okay, people who are like me or not like me or people who we should be, you know, fighting this war against. And then once that gets mapped on to racial groups, it's very difficult, as you mentioned, to think about, okay, well, how can we actually address the issue and not attaching that to you know our deep investment in identities and, and who we think we are who we think we should be in those um identities of you know good person right that you yeah. mentioned yeah and, and just uh to add to that really quick one thing that popped into my head was like i think you know as you were mentioning like things that bolster that you know i was thinking about how one of the things that i've uh come to understand is just how many people um, learn about if you're part of, of a privileged group, how much you are going to be learning about uh, marginalized groups uh, in terms of, of racial um, inequality and in terms of like people who experience incarceration or people who experience arrest and get caught up in the legal system. The media ends up being the only way that you actually learn about these things. So, you know, as you were saying that, I was like thinking, like, yeah, that's exactly how this goes in terms of, you know, part of it is also just the social segregation that, that people experience, you know, part of, part of being a dominant group member, part of the of privilege is being able to sort of exclude yourself mm -hmm. and learn about all this stuff secondhand. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to add to that. Cause I think, I think, yeah, that's so, uh, such a good summary of sort of, of what I found. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Well, let's take a quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM.
We're here on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana and I'm here with Dr. Michael Rosino and we're talking about his book, Debating the Drug War, Race, Politics and the Media. Now, I know when we first started our conversation this morning, you were talking about how you got that physical copy of the book in your hand on the same day that in New York, we were seeing some changes to drug policy. And so I'm wondering, you know, what do you think is the future of the war on drugs, thinking specifically about many different changing policies, particularly around cannabis? Um, Where do you see the war on drugs going? Is it ending? Is it going to just continue forever? What might the future look like? Um, you know, I think that's that's like the, the big question. And I think a great way to uh, be wrong is to try to predict the future. So <laughs> I'm going to try to I'm going to try to like hedge my bets a little bit, be safe about it. But I think I think what's really important that's going on right now that's going to kind of determine the future is that we are in a space where I think winding down the war on drugs is, is fairly inevitable, particularly when it comes to certain substances that there's more and more of a consensus that they're not as harmful mm-hmm. as a lot of people were led to believe for a really long time. I think you know there is sort of a cannabis sort of exception that a lot of people are making like, okay, that's maybe you know on the level of like drinking a beer or something. So like, it's fine. But, you know, all these other hard drugs are still really bad. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how those narratives change. And if, if the broader sort of movement that has formed over the past, um, particularly, I think that there has been like a really interesting and really sort of um, hope inducing uh, sort of confluence where more and more uh, activists who are engaging in drug policy reform are really taking on the challenge of addressing the issue of racial injustice in drug policy. So mm-hmm. for, for a long time, um, organizations that were pushing for even cannabis reforms, and I, I mean, you can see that in, in how I talked about the debate, like they were very scared to, to touch on that. They treated it as like, okay, this is a third rail issue. So like mm-hmm. organizations that people might have heard of, like the Marijuana Policy Project or Normal, were very scared to talk about race. They really wanted to depict it as sort of like um, not having to challenge the racial empathy gap, maybe even um, portraying <clears throat> users of cannabis as like white college students who, you know, have these promising futures or, or, you know, a way of appealing to that. And there is definitely a group of young activists across the country in solidarity with broader struggles against racial injustices that are pushing drug policy in that direction. So for instance, in New York, the policy that was passed um, did things like expunging people's uh, criminal records Um, It made it so that the massive industry uh, around cannabis that's going to probably pop up in the next few years where, you know, it's going to be bringing so much tax revenue that that is going to specifically be redistributed to the communities that were most uh, harmed by the war on drugs, which I think is really important and really Mm -hmm. awesome. And they also um, made sure that things like... um, street level enforcement is not taking place because that oftentimes gives police officers a license to uh, 
racially profile to uh, search people, um, you know, violate people's rights. So the fact that, um, you know, someone could walk down the street smoking a joint um, and not be harassed by the police, I think is, is um, pretty great in terms of like, you know, just making sure that if, we, if we're going to actually have these reforms, we should make sure that they're not entrenching other inequalities. Because mm-hmm. in other places, that really hasn't been the case. Um, so like in places like, like um, Illinois, for instance, where they've legalized cannabis and there aren't any uh, people in the cannabis industry that are, are people of color that are like owning businesses or um, places where uh, drug reforms take place, but then there's still disproportionate enforcement of like other statutes like underage uh, consumption or consumption in public. Um, so I think what I'm hoping for, in, and I think what we'll see is really this sort of uh, contestation taking place between more, more of a ground, uh, ground up, like bottom up movement of people who are passionate about this issue from the perspective of racial justice and human rights more so than just thinking about it as sort of like, um, you know, a freedom issue or, or like, you know, people should have the right to get high or something, mm-hmm. which, you know, I think that that's fine. But like, you know, actually taking that larger systemic approach and, and really not being um, compromising on it. I mean, I think that's really important is like people are forcing that conversation. So mm-hmm. I think it's inevitable that drug, uh, punitive drug enforcement is going to wind down, particularly in certain areas of the country, particularly, you know, it'll be kind of this piecemeal, like state by state approach that you can really Mm -hmm. see. The laws will be pretty drastically different. I wouldn't be shocked if, um, you know, if, if a president were willing within the next, you know, like 10 years to sign like federal legislation legalizing cannabis, um, But I think also it's important to remember like just how entrenched a lot of this stuff is. So one of the things that I try to think about is like, in some ways, uh, you know, we're back where we started at the federal level, because if you think about who we have as as president, um, you know, Joe, Joe Biden was the author of the 1994 crime bill that that really um, doubled down on a lot of these war on drug policies made them worse and led to racialized mass incarceration. And, um, you know, the administration has been really like not moving on this issue on the federal level. Um, So I think it's really going to come down to not necessarily like what happens, but it's going to come down to sort of like these ongoing contestations that we kind of see around every issue, which is going to be activists on the ground, um, advocates, people who are really invested in freedom and human rights, um, really trying to push that. There might be some interest alignment with uh, entrepreneurs who may be able to make some money off of this. I think that's Mm -hmm. another thing that's going to be an issue is like, these could be, these are going to be massive industries, particularly cannabis is such a massive industry that creates its own uh, issues and perverse incentives um, that that might make it more difficult, might entrench some inequalities. I think it is, but like, I think it is inevitable to see cannabis reform. And I think that, like I said, in certain states where there is the political will and there's not quite as much voter uh, suppression, I think we will probably see 
some broader decriminalization reforms. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, I think, you know, the big thing is if, if this is something that people hear about and they're passionate about and, and they're interested in, in kind of what I'm saying, um, you know, there are organizations on the ground right now that are doing such amazing work, like the Drug Policy Alliance, or even more uh, radical organizations like Critical Resistance that are pushing for um, decarceration so that less people are imprisoned overall, and we're relying on prisons less. They're, they're pushing for the types of policy reforms that will lead to less people being caught up in the, in the legal system. Um, there are tons of people who are doing work um, to sort of generate awareness. So, you know, I think it, it really comes down to like what people do, mm-hmm. um, you know, and even like for me, I've just been very uh, lucky to have any kind of platform at all to kind of talk about this stuff and spread awareness. And um, that's kind of how I tend to think about it is like, you know, we, we have the information. It really just depends on what people do with it. That's going to determine the future how hard people fight and just, you know, how well people can take advantage of the opportunities that pop up. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that information piece is so key. And that's why I was so excited to talk about this book, because as you mentioned, you know, as we've really been talking about throughout this morning's conversation, you know, even when people might have the information and have the data and have the facts, it's still very hard to fight against kind of all this, you know, media framing and these kind of cultural scripts or cultural ideas around the war on drugs. And so it's also can be very difficult to kind of rethink how we approach drugs, drug use, and what the potential future might look like. But there's definitely some reasons to stay hopeful, um, as you just mentioned. And I have one more question for you, because I know recently um, the Purdue Pharma case um, was kind of, or settlement was just conditionally approved. And in this case, of course, we're looking at big pharmaceutical company, but very much still shaping how we think about drugs and drug use. Um, And I'm wondering how much, you know, this settlement and potential other settlements around, you know, big pharma and their kind of. Uh, participation in a variety of type of drug addiction, how this might also kind of sway people's um, ideas or approaches or beliefs around kind of drugs writ large, or do you see this influencing um, those kind of opinions and conversations? Yeah, I think, I think it's a really crucial part of the conversation. I mean, there's several reasons for that. One, one that I think is fascinating is, uh, you know, I think it is, it is kind of encouraging people to take sort of a more like more of an approach to this topic where they're paying attention to questions of power and questions of like, who's benefiting from these things. I think that is really important. Like I I'm kind of um, I'm impressed at, at how much um, you know, given, given kind of the history of, of like white collar crime and, and how, you know, people can, can oftentimes engage in really harmful activities. And if they have enough power resources kind of get away with it, it, it has been interesting to see that um, these types of cases are, are taking place, that public opinion has kind of shifted away from focusing on maybe small level actors or focusing on like individual people who maybe are, um, you know, using certain substances to thinking about sort of the, the power thinking about who's capitalizing on it, thinking about those kinds of things with accountability. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And the pharmaceutical industry is so fascinating when it comes to this, because essentially when we talk about like perverse incentives, so many pharmaceutical companies, um, you know, they do have a lot of incentives to either over prescribe certain substances um, or to block drug, certain drug reforms that would make it so that other substances are available that um, people could use alternatively, for instance. Um, they've played a really big role in a lot of this. And, um, you know, it's such a massive industry. Um, I think that this is one of the things that uh, is also interesting from sort of a um, racial justice perspective, because I think there has been so much outrage on behalf of the opioid epidemic and so much humanization of mm -hmm. the rural uh, white communities who were upended. Um, and, you know, for someone like me who's, who's passionate about the racial justice per, uh, side of it, I want to see more of that type of, of empathy and humanization kind of all around and not just when it's only impacting certain communities. Um, and this even has some interesting like byproducts, like for instance, it, during the opioid crisis, obviously um, overdoses has been a massive problem, a massive public health issue that people are overdosing on opiates. And even when it comes to like distributing um, and administrating life-saving um, treatments. Um, there's racial bias and racial inequality and in who has access to that. So um, what, like if someone is white, they are way more likely to receive Narcan from uh, first responders than if they are black or Latinx, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, and so like you can still see these kind of biases playing a role. And I don't want to be too cynical and necessarily say, you know, whiteness is the only reason that uh, Purdue Pharma is being held accountable in terms of like what the victims look like. But I really do hope that it kind of encourages people to think critically about um, the systems of power, think about the role that, you know, uh, people's capital investments is playing in, in, in shifting these things. Um, and also thinking about the possibility of humanizing people who are uh, using drugs or struggling with drug misuse in some kind of way. Um, I think that's really important. And, and it, breaking that racial empathy gap so that way, if we can identify, um, you know, that people are being harmed by both, um, you know, the lack of public health uh, approaches to certain substances, as well as this other tier of sort of like um, incarceration, then I think, you know, that's going to lead to more and more outcomes, hopefully more and more accountability as well. Um, yeah, so, you know, it's a little bit mixed, but um, I think it's, it's definitely a really interesting piece of this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, I know that there will probably be more laws changing around cannabis. As you mentioned, we've already been seeing kind of this kind of state by state approach, uh, but we have a lot to look forward to around that issue in particular. And of course, more news will probably be coming forth about Purdue Pharma and other kind of big pharmaceutical companies as well. Well, Michael, it has been a pleasure to have you here with us this morning. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Uh, this has been really fun. Uh, yeah, I'm excited to hear myself on the radio. So 
And also, I do feel like I was cheating a little bit because I was drinking a cup of tea this whole time and not coffee. I was going <laughs> to wait till the end to say that. But uh, yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was fun. Yes, thank you. And it's okay. We accept tea drinkers and decaf <laughs> coffee drinkers and just, you know, good old H2O as well. Absolutely. That's important. Thank you again to Dr. Michael Rossino. Such a pleasure to talk more about his book, Debating the Drug War, Race, Politics, and the Media. So for today's positive note, I just wanted to leave you with this quote that says, Being negative only makes a difficult journey more difficult. You may be given a cactus, but you don't have to sit on it. (laughs) This has been Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Join me back here each and every Monday morning. And of course, if you miss out on the show, don't worry. You can listen again on WYXR.org or subscribe wherever you stream podcasts.